As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is David Balin, CIO and Global Head of Investments at City Global Wealth. David, we're lucky to catch up with you, sir, because we get to talk to you first about your outlook for 2023. Is it any different to what we've heard so much of in the last month? Well, it's a little bit different because it's going to be a tale of two halves. Jonathan, you know, the first half of the year, we see all of the signs of recession. And you've just talked about a lot of them with Lisa. Basically, you have lower oil prices. You've got the 10-year at 344. You've got you know, the stock market going through its third market, bear, you know, third bear market, and then, and, and then heading down. Markets lead the economy. And what they're telling us is that next year, the first half of next year, is going to be a difficult period, both in the U.S. and in Europe. And that is almost undeniable. It's almost impossible for the Fed to stop that now, especially as they're going to continue to raise rates. And so I think, you know, if you look at all of the data, if you look at the yield curve inversion, that's what it tells you. And I think we have to respect that as investors. That's why bonds are back. That's why it's a good idea to own bonds right now, because a year from now, bonds are going to be, uh, your yields are going to be even lower uh, than they are today. And then the second half of 23 will be the markets then looking at 24, looking at a recovery from whatever recession it is that we're going to have. And those are great times to be an investor. So it's not a great time to be a market timer. And I think that this story of the two halves, right, uh, is really the, the core part of what the outlook for 23 is. I don't think investors are taking seriously enough the slowdown that we can have, and they're not also looking through it and necessarily owning the right things that, they're, that are going to create profits for them uh, in, tw- in late 23 and 24. How can that be if everybody seems to be saying the exact same thing, that it's going to be a tale of two halves? This is basically the consensus. How are people unprepared then for exactly that scenario? Well, if you take a look at what they actually own, Lisa, you, you, that's, that's, the big, that's the big thing. They own, they're, they're waiting with a lot of cash, right? Uh, number one. Number two, they, they haven't taken an enormous you know, position in sort of intermediate, uh, you know, intermediate bonds. They have not necessarily repositioned themselves for the best growth shares for next year. I think we're going to see a time when when you're going to have a snapback in growth. And and then lastly, you know, with the dollar, right, you know, we look at the dollar euro today at around 105. This is the th- you know, a third large dollar rally in the last 50 years. This is not a synchronous thing with the rest of the economy. So how many how much do U.S. investors, for example, have in China? Very little. How much they have in, in non-U.S. markets? An extremely small amount. 
So there are plenty of things that they don't have for the year that we anticipate uh, coming ahead. And 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 by the way, the, the very fact that you mentioned the, you know, two other two other firms and their views on on interest rates, one being at 250 and one being at four percent, is indicative that there really is not consensus about about what is going to happen or the or the depth you know and length of whatever slowdown we have. I don't think there is consensus about that. We started on oil, and I want to just build on that a little bit because I've been incredibly confused by some of the price action. Yes, you see the uh, potential deceleration in global growth with possibly the weakest growth going back decades next year. On the flip side, China's reopening. On the flip side, people expect a brighter time in the second half of next year. Do you take a signal from oil or is that noise at a time when liquidity, according to some measures, is the lowest going back to 2015? Well, I think that oil is indicative, right, of, of the fact that, you know, demand isn't going to be there. Just think about U.S. inventories right now. They've never been higher for goods, right, you know, in, in both wholesale channels and in retail channels. And the U.S. borrowed those goods, right, imported them, when, you know, when, when you had to order two dishwashers to get one. Now what's actually happening is in, in imports into the United States are going to be crashing. And that ultimately is the reason why, you know, why we're discounting Chinese reopening. China's domestic market and its regional market are going to do extremely well. But imports, right, coming or exports from China to us and to the West are going to be really diminished this year as a result of the current economic situation. David, what would happen if this recession in America that everyone's forecasting was delayed? Given the amount of cash that's on the sidelines, how big is the risk that people under own equities going into the new year? Uh, that, that's possible. But what we have to look at is whether or not the Fed is going to follow through. And there are two indications, I think, that it will. One is they've said that they're going to raise rates 50 basis points more. Lisa's already highlighted that the that the inflation, you know, a lot of inflationary signals, especially, you know, those leading indicators are already falling. The Fed is focused on the lagging indicators, housing. Right. And they're looking at that data, even though we know we're going to have a reduction in, uh, in construction, employment and such. And they're looking backwards. Right. In terms of their, their their inflationary expectations. So what does that mean? And let's give you one example. Why will there be less employment in the United States? All of the houses that were started a year ago are ultimately going to be built and there isn't going to be demand for new ones. That's going to take out 400,000 of 900,000 residential construction jobs. We could lose two million jobs next year. So what I'm looking at is a situation where only when the Fed actually sees unemployment will they begin to pivot and reduce rates. By that time, it will be too late to actually sort of say we're going to have some type of soft landing. We'll already be in a declining uh, you know, employment situation for potentially the next six to 12 months. And so to your, to your point, if that is exactly what happens, right, investors have to be defensively positioned now and in equities and then become offensively positioned in more aggressive things next year. And they should be, you know, having a fully invested portfolio. And it's clear to us that they do not. So, David, when, and this is frustrating for a lot of people, if everyone's forecasting the same thing, so we're all waiting for this recession to hit, for equities to roll over, then we're all going to buy because there's going to be this great recovery in the second half. Why don't I just buy now? Jonathan, if people actually bought now, that would be fine. I would actually much prefer people to have a fully invested portfolio of stocks and bonds today than to actually have 20% of their money in cash because there's no way that they're going to be able to do the right market timing. The, the critical point, though, and where there is not consensus is on what you want to be owning on the other side. And there's a lot of areas of beating down, you know, whether it's non-U.S. equities, whether it's small caps, whether it's technology, high-quality technology shares, lots of place in the market. I'll tell you one area of the market that I think investors are also overlooking, which is what if we don't have a terrible credit cycle, actual defaults and things, but we have what Lisa talked about, which is a lot of illiquidity. 
There are lots of bonds right on the periphery that are trading now with 15% handles just because of the illiquidity, but not because of credit risk. So as I said, I think that the Fed is going to cause an unusual circumstance. Um, and I, I think that people have to really respect the market. They have to see what's going to happen uh, before they then you know, rotate from one type of equity investment to another. John was speaking with Savita Subramanian of Bank of America yesterday, and she does not think tech is going to remain a leader in the uh, upcoming cycle, that people are perhaps conditioned by past performance. Do you disagree and why? Why is that still an area that you should own? Um, I could not disagree more uh, than with that, but let's just take cybersecurity as as an example, right? You know, and let's you know, just take a look at big banks who have spent, you know, 300% more on cybersecurity over the course of the last five years. It's an unstoppable trend, right? Healthcare, an unstoppable trend. Take a look at biotechnology, drug development, same thing. Take a look at energy uh, technology. Right now, Europeans, if they just bought heat pumps, could uh, literally take their your dependence on, on, on gas down by 35%. So tech is going to provide us with I think an enormous amount of growth going forward, but it is at the end of the day, a replacement for capital spending. That's what it is. Instead of buying, you know, buying new equipment, we're buying new software, right? Instead of going out and building new factories, which we are in the United States, we're going to automate them with robots. And, and so that to me is unstoppable. And what we want to do is get our clients invested in that, right? At much lower prices, which we can now by identifying which companies are well positioned and also which have the management's, that have now just been through the, one of the most difficult periods in history economically in terms of all of these vicissitudes, and now they're going to go out and, and demonstrate that leadership. So to me, we're going to have a tech is back moment in the spring. Is that meta, David? I don't think, no, I'm not talking just about the leadership of four companies I, anymore. I that, that, is, that is just, you know, that, you know, the, the largest companies, you know, every 10 years we know that there's a rotation of leadership, right? What I'm talking about is the, is the group of leaders behind them that are working, you know, on cloud-related activity. You know, we, we, we just simply have seen so many opportunities uh, uh, for truly transformational uh, tech gains, and, and those companies are, are readily apparent to us. David Balin, wonderful to catch up with you, sir, as always, of City Global Wealth. Wow. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We do want to dig more into the labor market, into the question about how far along we are in this disinflationary moment. Kathy Bustancic, chief economist at Nationwide, joining us right now, who's been incredibly on top of the tightness of this labor market and how quickly it could potentially loosen. Kathy, how much are you starting to see true signs of softening, of loosening in a market that is consistently surprised to the upside in terms of how hot and tight it is? Uh, good morning, Lisa. Happy to be with you. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of loosening. Uh, and I think that's um, actually, you know, on one hand, good news, right? But uh, on the other hand, for the Federal Reserve, uh, not what they're looking for. They really do want and need the labor market to loosen. Uh, not that they necessarily want to see jobless claims or 
people be, you know, become unemployed. But what they'd like to do is take some of the air out of the market, right? That the job openings relative to the unemployed still really high, running around one seven. Wage growth accelerated. Actually, GDP growth looks like it's accelerating in the fourth quarter. This is going the opposite way, at least for now, of what the Fed desired. They want growth to slow below potential. So that means GDP growth below 1.8. We're running a little bit above 3% for fourth quarter. So there's more work to be done. And I just think it reinforces for next week uh, that we you know, hear from Chairman Powell. Yeah, they may doubt they will dial back to 50 basis points. That seems to be in the card in terms of rate hike. But they still need to sound a bit hawkish. Um, they don't want to scare the markets, but they do need to lift rates at least to, to 5%. Do you buy into this idea that we are seeing more disinflation than the data can possibly show now because it is a backward-looking indication? People point to dealer views on car sales next year. People point to a lot of different goods, including even some food that's starting to get a bit disinflated. They point to gasoline prices. They even point to rents. Why is that not all coming together with a feeling that perhaps the Fed is getting what they want in terms of a disinflationary rollover effect that will help them? We're on the way, you know, we're on the right path, and particularly in the goods sector. Uh, In the service sector, that's where the issue is, right? And that's where their services are very labor intensive. So coming back to the labor market, you need to see wage growth slow um, in order for uh, service producers to be able to pull back uh, on their increases. And as long as the consumer stays strong and willing to pay, um, we're still kept, you know, in this inflation sort of dynamic. Um, I think what you, you have to see is the labor market wage growth slow. And, and what, you know, the market applauded the fact that unit labor costs were a bit cooler this week. But we really need to see that be extended and maintained. My concern is that companies will start to lose a little pricing power, just as you said, some goods and even a little bit of services losing some pricing power, but at the same time, input costs, labor costs still running high. That's a profit margin squeeze, right? And and that's, um, you know, the equity market's not really priced for that. Um, nor is the bond market, frankly, priced for the Fed to go to 5% and hold it there for all next year. As you know, Lisa, bond market's still pricing in some easing next year. So people would say, what's the market seeing that the Fed is not, that economists are not, that the market tends to be a forward indicator? And to your point, right now, there is a huge dissonance between what economists say, what the projections are for where the Fed funds rate should end up, and what you see with respect to margin compression and what you see with respect to yields. What gives? Who's right? How do you know? Well, it, it, you know, ultimately, we don't know, right? Uh, but be, you know, it's, it's the fundamentals suggest that the equity market has gotten ahead of itself, even the bond market. Um, from what we hear from the Federal Reserve is they're very resolved and resolute to make sure that inflation comes down. Even though we're seeing these disinflationary forces come into play, it's not a, enough yet to get us back towards the 2% target level with confidence. And I think that's what the Federal Reserve is saying. We really want to be confident we're back to 2% just because we go from you know, seven percent, seven seven on it. Let's say headline inflation down to five percent. You know, that's still not enough. So we're in the right direction, and I think that means that the Fed doesn't have to raise rates to six percent or higher. But it doesn't mean that you know they're 
ready to start to pause or, or even cut rates, um, you know, looking into next year. As we talk about what's going on with the labor market, we are awaiting a press conference from President Biden on a prisoner swap after releasing Brittany Griner. We will bring that to you uh, when he does come out with those comments. He did say that he has spoken with her and she is safe. Kathy, we're talking about the likelihood that the Fed is going to raise rates a lot further than people expect, that perhaps the uh, equity market is going to see a bigger downturn as a result of margin compression. I am wondering whether the structure of this market market has been surprisingly resilient to you, given how much debt has been incurred over the past few years, over the past decade, and the idea that it's been predicated on low rates. People thought that it would break. It hasn't. Does that give you confidence or does that make you think that it's just a matter of time? I think that that situation, because rates were low for so long, it actually allowed companies to lock in for for a long period of time. Um, So I was never really overly concerned. I mean, there's certain sectors, the tech sector, which has already uh, been repriced because they rely on on debt and that not able to lock in for as long a period of time. But if you look at the maturity wall that people talk about, it's at least three, even, you know, maybe five years away from now. So not, not overly concerned about that. Um, and I do think, you know, once we get past this period, I think we go back to low interest rates. I'm just saying that for 2023 seems to me the market is is premature and thinking, you know, this is all behind us. I, I guess the idea is, um, and you were talking about this earlier this morning, it's an unusual period, right? We, we've never seen a recession so anticipated. Um, and it does make you, you know, I spent a lot of time on Wall Street. It does make you seem to think, well, maybe I should take the other side of that and bet that a soft landing is, is more likely now. But again, you come back to those fundamentals. It just doesn't seem to add up um, that, yeah. you know, the recession risks are still there. Kathy Vistanchik of Nationwide, thank you so much. Dan Ives joins us now, Senior Equity Research Analyst over at Wedbush. Dan, your thoughts on this story that came out moments ago? I think you're starting to see a bit of a demand issue in China. And that's something that I think Tesla's adjusting to. I still view it more near term, not a long term systemic issue. But look, after a Cinderella story, that they're starting to clearly hit some hurdles in China. Does that extend to Apple? Is that a Tesla problem or a broader problem? I think it's more of a Tesla problem right now. I mean, Apple, right? if I look, demand to supply is still about three to one. Their issue continues to be supply, Apple, not demand. And I think that's why the stock still continues to hold in there because of what we're seeing on iPhones globally. I think for Tesla, look, it's competition in China. They continue, I think, be in a very strong position, but you're starting to see cracks in the armor and they need to adjust. And that's what you're starting to see here. But our thesis for 23 in terms of 2 million units globally continues to stand. Others would start pushing back on that. We heard from Morgan Stanley downgrading their view of Apple as a result of uh, some of the suppliers discussing a drawdown or a decline in some of the demand side. Is the lack of demand in China giving a pass to tech companies to start to divert business out of that nation a little bit more, especially in light of the turmoil we've seen over the past few years? Yeah, Lisa, I think specifically for Apple, I mean, clock struck midnight in terms of what they've seen in China because of the Foxconn situation, the zero COVID, you're seeing a little loosening of that. But I think, you know, it's really been a disaster in terms of Christmas. We're going to see about 10 to 15 million shortages because of what we're seeing in China. So I do think you're gonna start to see diversifying out, potentially India, Vietnam, and others. 
And I, I think you're starting to see a changing of the tide there in terms of what we've seen in China the last few months. So if you think that this is more of a Tesla story in terms of competition in China, a lack of demands at a time when that really had been a bright spot, how much is this pressured even further by this idea of a margin loan to Elon Musk to back Twitter, to refinance that's like backed by Tesla shares? I mean, just basically leveraging up some of his holdings. Selling diamonds to buy a $2 slice of New York City pizza. I mean, it's essentially the problem with the Tesla story, using it essentially as an ATM machine. And I think that's really been an overhang on the Tesla story. The frustration continues to build because of you know the Twitter circus show. And, and I think right now it's not what investors want to see at a time where demand, especially in China, this is finally a storm that must needs to navigate Tesla through. So, Dan, why are you still at 250 on the stock? outperform? Uh, because, I mean, my view is the, the 2023 and 2024 story, that's still 2 million units. I, I still view this as more, more of a soft pass, not the start of what I view as a broader structural issue. And in terms of EV, I mean, I think we're going to see that in terms of adoption double in China over the next two to three years. Tesla is going to be a big, major part of that. I just think for right now, it's been a magic carpet ride, and they're finally hitting some uncertainty. They need to navigate through it. What did you make of the Apple delay when it comes to vehicles and autonomous driving? What did you make of that? Look, I think writing is in the wall. I do think that you know, the China situation is throwing a lot of those strategic plans, you know, I think potentially out in terms of what Apple is dealing with. And I think right now, juggling a lot of balls. I think first, strategically moving out of China is number one. And also, I think, look, the demand story in terms of overall EVs and autonomous, this is not the top priority for Apple. That's why I think that's pushed out. But I think, as German's talked about, still believe that the Apple car will come, even though it's probably delayed by another year. Do you think that uh, there is overly uh, pessimistic views around Apple, around big tech more broadly, as not being able to be the drivers of the next cycle? We keep hearing about that again and again. The de-indexing. I'm never going to get this right. What did uh, some she say? It was outdexing. Outdexing. Uh, you know, basically throwing out versus some of the big indexing. Tech. Yeah. Okay. So throwing out some of the big behemoths. Do you buy into that story? And if not, how do you push back? Look, the New York City cab driver right now is bearish on tech. And I think that's sort of the trend here. I Look, my view is that that's still not going to change over the coming years in terms of tech leading. You know, I think the market higher because this transformation that we're seeing, a fourth industrial revolution, is not ending. I think it's just more of a shift. And I still think a lot of these tech names are oversold here. They're clearly going through a correction, as we've seen, which has been brutal. They're cutting costs. But growth on the other side of this, I think, continues to be robust. But it's as under-owned as I've seen tech since 2000. Uh, 10. Dan Ives of Wetbush. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. card. 
Look at this for a lead paragraph in our story on Xi. Two months after snubbing US President Joe Biden's pleas for oil, Saudi Arabia is rolling out the red carpet for his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. Alan Wall joins us now, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and author of Saudi Inc. Alan, how significant are these meetings this week? I think they're pretty significant, um, especially from an oil perspective. And I think they're much more significant for Saudi Arabia than they are perhaps for China, because the the Saudis have long had very strong oil ties with China. I think a lot of people don't realize that these go back all the way, in fact, to 1989, when Ali Naimi, who was the then the CEO of Aramco, went to China to try to see, you know, what kind of uh, interest there might be for Saudi oil there. And he didn't really see all that much, but he's had had his eye on China for years. And as soon as uh, he saw economic development there, basically kind of pounced and uh, was able to get some really good long-term deals for uh, Saudi crude oil there. So I think this is partially a way of reminding China, hey, we're your, your really good, stable crude suppliers. We've got a lot of joint ventures and petrochemicals in China. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of cheap Russian oil on the market, but don't, don't forget about us. Uh, and then at the same time, Saudi Arabia is definitely trying to see if it can capitalize on this relationship with China and build even more economic ties, more business ties that go beyond oil, which is something Saudi Arabia really wants to do. Uh, whether or not this can dis- can extend into the political and the diplomatic uh, sphere is really, I think, the big question for uh, these uh, meetings. What do you think the message for America is? I think the message for America is that um, China is also looking to to put itself as a player, a really big, important player out there in the um, political and diplomatic uh, arena, and that um, the United States is no longer the biggest or the only uh, force in the Middle East. I think militarily, uh, China is not looking to supplant the U.S. in any way in the Middle East. China doesn't really have any interest in kind of defending the Middle East as the U.S. has uh, has put itself out there for. So I don't think that there's really a concern uh, when it comes to that. But uh, there's definitely awareness that the United States is no longer Saudi Arabia's most important economic relationship. Uh, Now they've got a really important economic relationship with China. And that's the message uh, here. Is there also a message about China reopening and trying to secure enough crude, enough of the uh, fossil fuels that it needs to support its economy? Yeah, that's a really important point. And I think that the fact that this meeting was planned uh, before China uh, decided to relax its zero COVID uh, restrictions kind of gives you a sense that perhaps they, they knew that this was coming or or perhaps even the Saudis knew that this was coming. The fact that OPEC hasn't made any major moves says that they definitely see that even with a China reopening, the market uh, you know, for oil is definitely potentially still soft. But uh, I do see this as kind of uh, heralding that uh, movement. I want to pick up on that, Ellen, that even with China reopening, the market, the demand side of the equation is still softening for crude. Can you explain how the current market pricing of oil makes sense to you, given that we are seeing a potential opening up in China that, as one of our recent guests said, is much faster than he expected? 
Yeah, I do think that um, what what a lot of people are looking at now is is very much the financial market is how much you know crude is out there. There's still oil being released, I think, from from the SPR. I think as that winds down, if it does indeed wind down, we will see uh, oil prices pick up a bit. But also, this time of year is not usually you know a big time for oil demand. So um, there's also that to take into a, into account. Um, there's the economic issues in Europe, and we just see in general, you know, things are 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 not looking all that strong right now, but I do think that that going out, you know, um, farther out, we will probably see uh, a pickup in demand. Maybe not, you know, as as your previous guest said, until, uh, you know, if we're going to be in a recession for the first half of uh, 2023, we may not see it until uh, after that. But um, I think that OPEC is kind of playing it safe here. They made no changes. They're waiting to see what happens in the market. I think their decision to cut earlier in um, this year was probably the right one uh, economically uh, and financially, even though the United States was very much displeased. The right decision, Bramo, from OPEC Plus. After all the pushback we heard from a couple of months ago, was it the right decision? Now let's see what happens. Low 70s kind of say maybe it was. Yes. Now let's see on the flip side. Do they start refilling the SPR? And well, that's I ask the question. This, right. Because if, are they going to go in the opposite direction? And then do people start screaming, you guys are artificially increasing prices? I mean, honestly, because at what point does the U.S. become the marginal swing producer or the swing uh, demand provider here? Ellen, let's squeeze that in. The SPR, what's your understanding of when the U.S. administration comes back in and starts buying again? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, how how soon can they start buying? Can can you legitimately start refilling the SPR while you're still uh, while you're still uh, draining it? Uh, that's a really good question because I don't think the last uh, release is happening. I think it's happening right now. So uh, I do think they're going to wait at least until we hit the seventy dollar mark in WTI. Uh, but then there's also got to be oil for them to buy. And um, you know, is there U.S. oil that's being produced that's available for them to buy? And that's a good question. And uh, is our companies going to want to sell to refill the the SPR when they could be selling potentially for a little bit more uh, overseas or whatnot? I think that's 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 the question. And uh, we could potentially even see U.S. uh, buying maybe some foreign oil for the SPR. And remember, they need to buy heavy oil. They can't just refill it with light oil from, uh, you know, the Permian. Ellen, can you just talk to me quickly about the politics of buying foreign crude to fill up the SPR? How do you think that's going to play out? It's not going to look good. Um, the truth is it has to happen because you can't just have uh, an SPR full of very light crude oil. It's not going to work, uh, particularly for American refineries, if they have to use it for some kind of uh, you know national emergency or say there's a hurricane. You're going to need uh, various different types of crude, but it's not going to look good. Alan Wild, thank you, of the Atlantic Council and author of Saudi Inc. Fantastic conversation. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.